Hey folks, Belezo here. You're listening to the ED ECMO podcast. Listen, last Wednesday, November 29th, Shiner and I recorded an episode. It's the newest iteration of the three stages of ECMO, which you're going to hear about next. Uh, however, the next day, something pretty incredible happened. We had a patient who came to our emergency department and arrested. A little bit of a teaser. You're going to have to wait till the end of this episode to find out what happened, but it is an incredible story, and I beg you to wait and see what happens. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and today I'm with Joe Belezzo. Hey, Zach. Oh, man, it's so good to be back it's in the studio. It's been a while. It's good to be back, buddy. Oh, man. Okay, so today we're going to do three stages, but we got a little advertising. Reanimate 5 is coming up. It's March 8th and 9th. We have just the best it's faculty best. coming. Uh, Dimitri Yiannopoulos from Minnesota, you've heard. He's revolutionized our, our current understanding of UCPAR. He will be at Reanimate. We have Aaron Doonan, cardiologist from Kansas City. We have the two Parisians. We have Lionel and Alice from Paris coming back for pre-hospital ECPR. Jim Manning from UNC back again. Chris Nixon, Melbourne, Australia. As you all know, he is fantastic. He'll, he'll, he's, he's back for Reanimate 5. Yeah. Amy Hackman. Oh, fan favorite. CT surgeon, yeah. USC. And uh, man, she was awesome at R4. Zaf is back. Uh, and Scott, you and me. Yeah. Which is Chris Ho. The usual suspects. Yeah. So great. March 8th and 9th. Hope to see you there. Hope to see you there. All right. So today, three stages. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk a little bit about chain of survival though. Yeah. So, you know, you and I are both, I think, uh, big chain of survival guys, Zach. And, um, medics do a great job in the field trying to get patients to us. They, you know, I think they have a, a sense for the patients that are truly, you know, too vital to die, the ones that may have a chance of survival. And the key uh, to a lot of this, we, we, we get nowhere in our ER unless the f- chain of survival is done with each of the links done perfectly. And that includes, you know, early EMS activation, early CPR in the low flow state, uh, early defibrillation, basic and advanced EMS services and ALS and post-arrest care. Those are the, those are the five components of the chain of survival. And we have a big responsibility to take on when that medics show up with that certain d- person who is too vital to die and they hit our ER and we've got to get them on pump or get return of spontaneous circulation. It's our responsibility to do that. And we take that pretty seriously. And that's the reason why we teach this stuff. We've honed this stuff over the course of the past five years. You know, the last time we did a talk on three stages, Zach, was in February of 2014, man. That was edecmo.org slash two. That's awesome. <laughs> a lot has changed since then. And we've see, we're seeing worldwide that the places where eCPR is successful are the places that put a lot of energy into their EMS. Yeah. A lot of energy into getting those patients to the ER that are still, you know, salvageable. And you see it in Minnesota where they've gone to that um, load and go technique, getting mechanical chest compressions. We see it in Paris where they have a whole system employed. We're seeing it in Utah and New Mexico and, um, you know, Seattle. We're having all these places where we have developed EMS systems that can effectively do um, prolonged low flow states of, uh, adequately. Yeah. You know, and this is all born, I think from the fact that our out of hospital recovery, uh, our, our recovery from neuro intact from out of hospital cardiac arrest is so crappy over the course of the past couple of decades in the eight to 10% range. And we're starting to see historically with ECPR, 
you know, recovery rates in the 25, 30% range. And in the crazy cases with Demetrius Yiannopoulos out in Minnesota, we're seeing rates of 40 to 45% recovery. So clearly we have some, uh, some ground to gain in this world. And we're working every minute to try and make that happen. You know, eCPR is only in option if that entire chain of survival that we just talked about, the EMS efforts were done perfectly, uh, you know, with our goal is uh, to find that needle in the haystack. And once they hit our door, we need to organize everything in a perfect way such that the patient either gets return of spontaneous circulation or gets uh, eCPR performed perfectly such that we can be that sixth component of the chain of survival and possibly get the patient up to the cath lab, IR or OR, whatever their definitive management may be. All right. So let's get into these three stages. Let's just remind listeners what we mean when we say each of the stages. Stage one is? Stage one is placement of commercially available cannulas. It's the same catheters. It's the same thing you're doing right now with most of your recesses, only it's regimented. So is that a word? Regimented? Regimented. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so it's placement of a, in, in our case, we put a five French uh, single lumen in the artery of the, uh, the femoral artery and a nine French um, uh, sheath in the uh, femoral vein. Okay, so that's stage one, but we've changed this up. I mean, we've gone differently since February or whatever it was, 2014. We were initially putting in nine French catheters into the femoral artery, and we certainly aren't doing that anymore. We've now gone down to five French, and even some of us are using the micropuncture kits that, that have the really thin wires that we can get even smaller. Well, let's take a step back, though. So if, uh, if you run a, a code the way we traditionally have in the past— Patient shows up, uh, they get moved over to the hospital gurney, takes about five minutes to completely unpack the patient. And then you start running your code and you go, you know, the first three to five minutes and then another three to five minutes and then another three to five minutes. Where are you at? You're at 20 minutes, 30 minutes down the road before you go, oh, this guy's a refractory VF. Oh, maybe we should consider ECMO. And that's the wrong approach because you just lost 20 to 25, maybe 30 minutes of time. And study after study has shown that not only no flow states have poor outcomes, but prolonged low flow states have poor outcomes. I think a couple of studies, which I'll put in the show notes, one shows that uh, low flow states extending beyond 16 minutes uh, is associated with poor outcomes. And another one, 21 minutes is the inflection point whereby poor outcomes happen. So if you wait until after that 20, 25 minute, you're, you've, you, the, the, that ship has sailed. We need to get... Uh, ECMO going earlier. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that every patient who's 90 years old who comes into our ER gets ECMO? Hell no. But what that means is we march down the ECMO pathway in parallel to the ongoing resuscitation, which means that you need to have two separate activities happening at the same time. Activity one is a doctor in charge of running the code. And activity two is the eCPR specialist doctor. Okay, so you, you got in a really good point here, which I think we do need to take a step back on. In the last three years, how has your setting up of the room, not, not getting into too much detail, but how has that changed so that we can successfully get them on ECMO faster? So the key here, yeah, good, good question, Zach. The key here is that you need to have a doctor adjacent to the, the eCPR doctor needs to be in position to have needle in skin in the minimal amount of time from the time the patient hits the medic. 
uh, hits the uh, hits the hospital gurney, and so we do so, you know have a uh, established choreography of the code, which we're not going to get into in this episode, but uh, we can uh, give you some links in the show notes to that stuff. Bottom line here is that as the if I am the eCPR doctor, my back is to the wall. I've got an ultrasound machine in the room, and I am fully gowned, draped, prepped bonnet, mask, uh, sterile gloves, sterile ultrasound probe, needle in hand. The patient hits the uh, hospital gurney, pants come down. I've got a dedicated person to do that. Again, won't get into too much of that now. Uh, groin is splashed with betadine and chlorhexidine. Drape goes down and I've got a needle tip in the skin within seconds to minutes of that patient hitting my gurney. Uh, next, what I'm looking at is the, uh, I'm taking my ultrasound probe, linear array probe and looking at the v- uh, femoral vessels in transverse. When I look at them, I try to identify the artery first. We teach artery first, although other places places uh, may go vein first. We teach artery first. Reason for that is that once you get the, the further along you get into the code, the harder and harder we think it becomes to access the femoral artery. And we think the femoral vein is easier to access in time. So artery first for us, I put the needle in skin. I take a look. I see what I think is the femoral artery and I do the blasphemy. I stop CPR but just for seconds. So stop CPR. I'm the only one in the room allowed to call stop CPR, which time I put the needle tip into the artery, pass the wire in needle out. I now have the wire in the femoral artery, start CPR. And that you now have a rail. You have a wire in the femoral artery and you can now go after the vein. All right. And just to sort of give a perspective, we have gained you know, knowledge from all over the world. There are places that are doing it differently. This is how we've set it up and have had success in Paris and in Minnesota. They do the uh, um, vein first. And they also use, and Joe and I have done this as well. They use in Minnesota, they put both of the wires in before they actually put the cannulas in. And Mm -hmm. this does give you a little bit better resolution on your second vessel ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to sort of just have a hard stop as well at that point, if you're going to go directly to ECMO lines rather than putting in these resuscitation lines that we think are important. Yeah. So then I'm changing out my arterial uh, wire and over, over that wire I'm placing a, well, we place a five French cook catheter, but any uh, small arterial cannula would work. Uh, transduce that for pressures for various reasons. Uh, and then we place a femoral vein line, whether that's a nine French or a, a smaller seven French uh, vein line, we put a cortis in, but any commercially available line's fine. You now have the completed stage one of ECMO. But really, what have you done here? Really, all you've done is put in a good arterial line and a good vein line. But if you do this in every single one of your codes, your nurses are going to become very good at hanging your arterial. They know you're going to want that arterial transduction set up every time. There's no question asked. They get good at it. I've gotten to the point, you can tell me whether this is true for you, Zach, where I am trying to get the femoral artery accessed and I've got a nurse holding a dripping arterial line for me. That's where we're at now. And that is a culture change that's huge. So arterial line in, it's transduced. I can monitor chest compression quality, chest compression depth, chest compression speed. I can look at, I can do hemodynamic guided epinephrine dosing. A lot of stuff can happen with access of the femoral artery. And then the vein line is a great resuscitation line. So have I really done stage one of ECMO? I don't know. But what I have done is put in really good resuscitation lines. In the end, it ends up being what we call stage one. 
point of uh, point of order here, though, remember that the other doctor is running the code. That doctor, the code doctor, must not get sucked into the excitement of the eCPR, and it's so easy to do that. So I've been there. Yeah. So so that doctor needs to keep head above the trees. Needs to keep the bird's eye approach. Needs to be understanding what's happening in the overall code, and most importantly, find out if this is an ECMO candidate. Yeah, so that's the hard stop of stage one is deciding that. And just two episodes ago, we did talk about all the indications for ECMO, but you know, in the end, it's not easy. And so that that job of the resuscitation doc is huge. And when they get start get sucked into those lines, a lot of stuff starts failing on the the traditional resuscitation part of the the code. Okay, so your uh, resuscitation doctor, your code doctor decides, uh, talks to the family. This guy's a healthy guy. Otherwise, he has no comorbidities. He meets all of our inclusion criterion. And the chain of survival was done perfectly from head to toe, soup to nuts. So now, Zach, what are we going to do next? So stage two is now when we're cannulating up. This is when we're putting in the dilators. We have adopted... I think quite successfully from the Australians, the idea of pin and pull and push and rack. Mm. And the idea here is that when we're putting in these, these dilators, you need to have some control of the wire. And we've actually trained our techs to do this through reanimate. Reanimate has taught our techs sufficiently now that they are, they are perfect at this. The idea being that as you're going in with your dilator, you need to move the wire back and forth so that you don't kink it. And as you're moving the cannula or the dilator out, you need someone holding the wire steady at the skin so you don't pull the wire out. Pin and pull, push and rack. It's a it's an upgrade for us. And Vin uh, Pellegrino from Australia, from the Alfred, taught us that technique. And I will also put those, uh, that, there's a video of that that we'll put in the show notes. It's a, it's a very effective video showing us uh, how exactly he does that. Yeah, holding your hands and how to do this and how to also kind of break that skin down that you're going to go through, the soft tissue, the the, the fascia layers, that is also key. And, and this is a big part of reanimate is really getting your hand motion down so that you can do this uh, quickly and accurately. Another good reason why reanimate is a good uh, experience, mainly to get your hands on to, to doing this stuff. A lot of this is muscle memory. Mm -hmm. uh, with a pin and pull and push and rack and, and that kind of a thing, there's two separate ways of doing it. There's a two provider way where one, uh, the assistant is doing the racking for you. And then there's the single provider way, which, and we teach both of those at, uh, at reanimate. But either way, so we are now in amidst stage two, we are upsizing to our ECMO cannulas. Uh, briefly, what size ECMO cannulas are you looking at? So for most people, I'm looking for a 17 French artery and then 21, 23 French vein uh, will get me sufficient drainage. I know some places are using bigger venous lines. Uh, not a lot of pace, people are using 19 French arteries, but some people are using 15. I think that's a little too low. The downsides being that hemolysis or that you're not going to be able to get adequate flows for the, to the patient. I think the most important thing is to turn to your ECMO team and with authority and confidence, ask for specific cannulas. <laughs> so you know, so it looks like you know what you're talking about. You don't want to be saying, I don't know, what do you think, nurse? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what to do. So there's that. So we select our cannulas and do serial dilation. You're going to do dilation of the, uh, to, to a size, one size less than whatever your cannula is. So if you're putting in a 17 French arterial cannula, you're going to put in, you're going to dilate up to a uh, 15 French 
uh, dilator. And then the only other point of order here is that uh, for the venous cannula, you don't want to uh, get it in too deep. So prior to placement, you're going to want to measure that out. We use a, we don't have fluoro in our ER, uh, so we do a rough uh, a landmark um, method where we measure the tip of the cannula, not the tip of the internal uh, dilator, but the tip of the cannula to the right nipple. Um, mark that on the ECMO cannula, or at least notate it, and that's the level that we put the venous cannula in, and then we can make adjustments to its positioning after we get them on pump. All right, and then so let's let's take, go back into the this little bit of the details. So the wires, what kind of wires are you choosing? Yeah, so you and I differ on this a little bit. I prefer to use stiffer wires in this case. So I use the Amplat Super Stiffs. Uh, you can use extra stiffs as well. My preference is a 145 centimeter .038 uh, Teflon coated floppy tip wire. Uh, we have those in our resuscitation cards as well as uh, smaller gauged wires, but I prefer to put those in. I don't find them to be hazardous as long as they're placed appropriately and carefully. And in doing so, I can also so look at those under ultrasound if I want to take a look at the abdomen after I so uh, you know after I put I put a wire in the arterial line a wire in the venous line and then I'll take a quick look with ultrasound on the abdomen if I can see one blood vessel in there whether it's the uh, aorta or whether it's the SVC it doesn't really matter which one it is I don't really care in the heat of the moment we have chest compressions going on but if I can see one blood vessel and one wire within that blood vessel I'm reasonably assured that the other wire is in the other blood vessel. So if I see two wires in there, I'm screwed because they're both in the same vessel. If I see no wires, I'm screwed because they're both in the other vessel. It's not perfect, but it's the best we have without fluoro. So Amplats, Amplats is the way that I go. I take out my two original resuscitation lines that are placed in stage two, and I begin the process of dilation, which as you said, I um, ask for the assistance of our techs who are get, who, who have gotten quite proficient at this. And so the Amplats and I you know, for a while there, I, and I still am an advocate of the floppy wire. And mostly that is because I think the Amplats makes you think that you can go hard. And uh, in, in my opinion, the slower you go, the faster you go. And it sounds, I, you know, dichotomous, but, you know, if you try and just jam that catheter in, you're going to kink the wire. You're going to injure the vessel. You're going to cause bleeding. And so the slow... Steady technique is advantageous. You can still do that with a Amplats. You just have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. It's the old special forces saying slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It's that same concept. Yeah, totally. And then the last point is that once you get that cannula in, man, those things tend to fly right out if you're not careful. You do any patient movement at all and, and those things will fly out. So you've got to secure those things down immediately. It's, a, it's something that can be easily forgotten. Amy Hackman from USC has taught us that it's uh, six... No less than six uh, sutures go in to hold those cannulas down. You're, you're suturing them in just like you would a chest tube, only not just one or two, but she puts in and recommends at least six. Yeah. I mean, just tie those things off as best as you possibly can. Okay. Now you've got two cannulas in. You've got, oh, before we uh, move on here, uh, the stage two is also my memory point. It's my, uh, my reminder that you have to give heparin. So, uh, you know, we're not going to give 5,000 units of heparin to somebody who just goes through stage one and then we decide to terminate efforts or they get return of spontaneous circulation. But once you get to this point where you're putting these giant cannulas in, you get to this point, you need to heparinize them. So we give 5,000 units uh, of heparin uh, by a uh, separate IV access line. Uh, and then later down the road, we'll measure ACTs and adjust our heparin dosing based on that. But either way, this is my, uh, my reminder that you got to give 5,000 units of heparin. Uh, all right. Well, let's go stage three. Stage three, the big, 
biggest thing here is underwater seal. Yeah, but real quick, before we get to stage three, remember that that is also your hard stop once again. There is really no harm in pronouncing a patient who you find does not meet ECMO criterion at the end of stage two. We've pronounced, you and I have pronounced several patients with ECMO cannulation, and that's fine. You've done no harm. If they're going to die anyway, you've done no harm by putting these cannulas in, and the cannulas are inexpensive. So if you get to this point and you put cannulas in, clamped off, and then you realize for whatever reason that they're no longer an EC PR candidate, it's just fine to call the code at this point. So once again, between stage two and stage three, another hard stop for the ECPR doctor to have a quick discussion with the code doctor. All right. So with underwater seal, this is where we you know, need to minimize any kind of air in the circuit yeah. because an arterial air embolism is a big deal. Venous air embolism, okay, we get those all the time. Those go with, through our lungs and whatnot. But and even on the venous side of the pump, we can deal with it with the oxygenator. But arterial emboli, no bueno. Uh, both air and, and clot. So, you know, you need to inspect your arterial line for both clot and air. And there are a couple of techniques that you can use to uh, de-air or remove the air or and or clot from that arterial line or the arterial side of the circuit. I uh, won't get into that right now, but uh, Zach's point is inspect that arterial side. It's the most important side. That's the blood that's going to hit the brain. And if there's an air or clot in that uh, segment of blood, you're going to get a stroke. Okay, so underwater seal is definitely a two-person job. Yep. This is where we've got one person with the with the two-e syringe full of, of saline pouring it over the, the cannula so that there's no air and the other person pushing the cannulas together. This allows for adequate removal of oxygen, a minimum amount of oxygen that are in air is going to get in there. And it also allows for a tight seal of the two of this of the cannulas to this to the um circuit. Yeah. And we've got video of that as well. I think I have an instructional video on that and I'll put that up in the show notes as well. Cause you know, and picture does sort of yeah, tell a half a dozen words. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, that's one of those visual things that's kind of best seen than explained, but either way is the way that Zach, uh, explained it is right. Uh, closing off or completing the circuit, uh, while making sure that all of the air and clot are removed is key. Uh, and then even after that, you've closed the circuit off. There are a couple of ways of removing uh, tiny air bubbles that may be, may be still present, but, uh, uh, that's that you now have a completed, uh, ECMO circuit. And we've, now turning on the pump, we're not going to get into a lot of the stuff that we do after turning on the pump, but when you first turn on the pump, tell me how you are taking off the clamps because currently the, the cannulas are, not, are now clamped. We are now going to turn the machine on, increase the RPMs, is there any rhyme or reason to how we do that? Well, I'm not sure what you're getting at there. What I usually do is, is ramp up the RPMs to about 1,500 RPMs. And we sort of consider that to be uh, the physiologic neutral. So at about 1,500 RPMs, uh, you're going to get uh, the, um, the, the equilibration point between uh, forward flow and backward flow in the ECMO circuit. So uh, you're not going to get a lot of flow that way. So what that does, though, is it creates a, a general uh, movement in the forward direction. Uh, and it's at this point that if you go any higher than about 1,500 RPMs, you're going to start seeing forward flow through the circuit. And at this point, we can start talking about removing clamps. Okay. And those are the three stages. The three stages of ECMO. She said the first thing that happened was she turned me over and saw my badge. She saw blood stopping. So she said, when she saw my badge, she just lost it. 
So I wanted to highlight the importance of this concept of three stages of ECMO by discussing a case. And this is a case that happened just last week on November 30th, 2017 at about 5.15 p.m. And this is a pretty incredible story. Diane McGrogan is one of our own sharp family members. She is the director of case management at our psychiatric hospital across the way. She's 61 years old, healthy, swimmer, hiker, athlete, and uh, actually had been feeling a little uncomfortable for the past week or so. Vague symptoms, but not feeling well. She went to her doctor and did report a little bit of chest pain, and then her doctor referred her to a cardiologist, and remarkably, two days prior, she had a treadmill stress test that came back completely normal. And uh, so when she continued to have chest pain in the days that followed, her doctor suggested that this could be a musculoskeletal cause because she was an athlete and uh, did a lot of working out. And uh, the night of November 30th, she left work at about five o'clock and just didn't feel well. She decided to stop into the ER on her way home just to get checked in, maybe get an aspirin or something. She parked her car, she walked to the front of the ER and sat down on a bench just outside of our emergency department. My name is Jessica Morrison. I'm a registered nurse at Sharp Memorial Emergency Department. And on Thursday, November 30th, um, I was a triage nurse and a patient that was discharged um, ran back into the emergency department and told me that a woman had collapsed outside in the ER. Diane had fallen over having sat down on the bench and collapsed. So I um, got a wheelchair because I wasn't sure, you know, if she was able to get into the wheelchair and go in and I grabbed a security guard to go with me uh, for assistance if I needed to send someone back in right away. And um, I found um, Diane laying on her back. She was completely supine um, with her hands contracted up towards her chest and at first appearance I, it looked like she was having a seizure. A week later Jessica was able to tell Diane what it was like taking care of her in that moment. Um, they came out with a gurney and like four people you know tried to pick me up and she said I was just like a limp noodle and um, she was worried that maybe I had a neck injury or something like that. But she said everybody just wanted to get me on that gurney and get me out of there. That's when Jessica went into superhero mode. I went to go feel for a carotid pulse and she did not have a pulse. So I went to find placement on her chest and I saw that she had a sharp badge on. And that just, you know, really kind of affected me. I said, oh my gosh, she's one of us. And I moved her badge aside and I immediately started chest compressions. At which time several ER team members ran outside to help Jessica help Diane. And within a couple minutes, uh, Dr. Eads came out with multiple nurses and techs, and we were able to lift her up, you know, briefly stop compressions to lift her up um, and put her on the gurney. And then uh, another nurse, Kualine, climbed on top of the patient and straddled her and did CPR, did chest compressions on her while she was being wheeled back into a room. So as we do with all coding patients who arrive to our emergency department, we assign a doctor as the code doctor and a second doctor as the line doctor or the ECMO doctor. In this case, Dr. Cade Lawrence uh, took the position as the code doctor at the head of the bed and began running the code with the usual 
shocks and drugs and chest compressions and supervising all of that. And at the same time, figuring out whether this was a patient who may be an ECMO candidate. At that time, I also took position in the patient's right groin area to act as the ECMO doctor. And I began preparations for stage one of ECMO. And off we go. In the meantime, Zach Shiner shows up to help with the post-pump critical care elements. Uh, and I should give a shout out at this time to Mike Nybecker, one of our clerks in the department who has spent considerable time at Reanimate and was able to position himself at the time to assist me as first assist in uh, getting the patient completely cannulated. So we ended up with a 19 French arterial line and a 21 French venous line in good position. We had the patient up on pump in about 32 minutes from time of arrest, 12 minutes from time of beginning of cannulation, and uh, flows in the three and a half liter range. In the meantime, Dr. Lawrence had been doing the important stuff and running the code expertly and uh, as things happened, there was a brief period of pulses early on in the resuscitation where we were able to capture an EKG and found the patient to have a STEMI, at which time Dr. Lawrence called a STEMI code. Uh, almost immediately after the patient was cannulated and up on pump, Dr. Arvin Nerulo, one of our incredible interventional cardiologists, came right to the bedside, uh, looked at the EKG, and took the patient up to the cath lab. The patient came up to the cardiac cath lab on ECMO, hemodynamically stable, and uh, we did a diagnostic uh, coronary angiogram from the right wrist. Uh, we actually found the widowmaker, the proximal LED lesion that likely led to her cardiac arrest. And then uh, we ended up directly stenting that artery. Uh, we used uh, IVIS to kind of optimize that stent to try to minimize contrast. And uh, we were happy with uh, the Timmy 3 flow we got throughout her LED. At the end of the case, we did a right heart catheterization just to assess her hemodynamics, and she was actually pretty hemodynamically stable uh, at the time she was leaving the cardiac cath lab. So she was transferred from the coronary cath lab to the intensive care unit. She was decannulated on post-arrest day two. She was extubated a couple of days later and has had 100% neurologic recovery. You know, this is a patient who went 32 minutes of CPR. Uh, she had witness arrest. She had a zero no-flow time with Jessica's incredible response. She had a very short no-flow time and gotten on to pump. But I can say that I was there. This patient had gone four rounds of chest compressions, four rounds of drugs, four rounds of shocks. She was refractory VF. She was going to die, if not for an incredible effort by an incredible team of incredible people. With all of you, um, that you all participated in saving my life. And I think if you all weren't there, that the stars wouldn't have been aligned and the same thing might not have happened, you know? This is the ED ECMO Podcast.